I'm sure you recall the story from the Garden of Eden. You can find it in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. It's a story not based in history, but it is based in truth. And we know it because it's our story. It, it's, we know it because it sounds like us. Do you remember when Adam and Eve are, are in the garden? They're there with God and in the Garden of Eden, and they're with God. And, and God looks out at all that God has created and said, all of these trees and their fruit are for you. Any of these trees, hundreds, thousands of them, tens of them, however many we know, God says, all of them are for you. Eat any of the fruits from any of them uh, except for this one. All the rest are yours. Just stay away from that one. You remember the story, right? Which is the one they went and ate from? Well, it was that one. God comes back to Adam and says, essentially, why did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam says, that woman that you gave to me. Do you see what he's doing there? Not only, not only is this the story of the first sin, this is the story of the first time somebody threw a relative under the bus. He's blaming the woman and he's blaming God. Oh, it sounds way too familiar, doesn't it? That's the truth of the story. That's the power of the story. Not that this is reflecting some ancient history. No, it's reflecting what we already know today, contemporarily. We have a tendency. When we get caught in a sin, a mistake, a failure, whatever it might be, to blame somebody else, to name the others out there as the cause. Oh, it's because of the way he was treating me or she was saying this to me and that's why I got caught up. It's really not my fault. Um, What I'm wondering this morning is this simple question. Where was your Garden of Eden? Where was the place where you first encountered the loss of your innocence? The place where you, and and dare we say this out loud, the place where you first experience the power of your own sin, your own willingness to get caught up in something you knew was wrong from the moment you began it. Where, where was your Garden of Eden? Mine was at a grocery store aisle where I'd been shopping with my, my mom. My mom left the, my brother and, and two sisters home with dad, and she said, why don't you come help me with the groceries? And so we went to the store and filled up the cart like we would do, and we, we came to the, to the checkout counter, and I was standing there, and I remember like it was yesterday, looking at my mom, who was there, at the checkout person, and then looking right over here, and what's, what is always, always right there at the checkout aisle? Candy, yes. Oh, you've, you've had the same temptation, I see. <clears throat> All the, the Musketeers bars and the Snickers and... My favorite, the Butterfingers, were right there. I looked at mom again. I looked at the cashier again. I took that Butterfinger. I slipped it into my pocket, and I couldn't believe how easy that was. Mom paid for the groceries, went out to the car. She opened the trunk. I helped her put the bags of groceries in the back of the trunk. She got on the driver's side. I got on the passenger side, reached into my pocket, pulled out that Butterfinger. My mom looked over and said, what is that? It's a Butterfinger. <laughs> Where did you, why, why did you take that? It all began with Adam and Eve, Mom. Here's the way it really starts. <clears throat> I, I didn't really say that. I'd say that now, perhaps, if I were to get caught in a similar way. Do, do you see, what, do you see what, it, what it was? That was, for me, a moment when I realized I could do something that I knew was wrong. My mom said to me, all she said was, you know it's wrong to take something that doesn't belong to you you know it's wrong to steal. As far as I know, I'm pretty sure she never told my dad. She didn't make a big deal about it. But I remember being overwhelmed by this terrible sense of shame. 
failure. I, I, I remember worrying that my family's reputation was going to be ruined, that my father's ministry would be, would be canceled because of the, the terrible uh, shame that I brought on, on the family. Yes, I overreacted. I was only eight years old. But in the moment, in those feelings, they were real. Where, where was your Garden of Eden? Where, where did you first experience something like this? Was it in the candy bar aisle? Was it when a tax form was fudged to make the bottom line a little better? Was it when you shamed a friend in order to feel better about yourself? When, when was that? Where, where were you? I, I know, I know. It, it's, it's, it's not easy to talk about sin. In this church, for over 100 years, we've emphasized the love, the ongoing love of God, the, the, the forgiveness of God that will, is there forever and ever, the grace of God that is given not just to us, but to the entire world. That is indeed a good thing, but here's the deal. In order for that love and that forgiveness and that grace to be real, we have to name the reason we need it. Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my favorite writers. She's a, a, a beautiful preacher. Her, her, her writings are just, just filled with lyrical beauty that's, that's beyond what, what I've ever experienced with anyone else. She wrote a little book that I read last week titled, Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation. She says, listen to her words, we weaken the impact of grace and forgiveness when we fail to name the issue of sin. When we fail to name it, we actually weaken the forgiveness and the grace we need. She illustrates this point with the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story that Jesus tells? Why does it have so much power? Why is the father's kiss of forgiveness and grace so amazing and so moving? Because the son, the prodigal, knows he's guilty. He knows what he's done. That generates the power for the father who runs down the road, greets his son, kisses him on the cheek, and says, my son who was lost is found. My son who was dead is alive. The power is in the recognition of the failure. Later in the book, she has a chapter titled, Sin is Our Only Hope. It's kind of a provocative title. Preachers kind of do that once in a while. Sin is our only hope. What she means, though, is when we note our sin, our weakness, our failure, whatever it might be, that's when the hope emerges and the possibility for new life, for renewal, for recreation begins. Then she goes on. I want you to hear this. It's a longer quote. But hear these words. Forgiveness is a starting place. But most of us prefer remorse to repentance. We would rather feel badly about the damage we have done, hear this, than get estimates on the cost of repair. We'd rather learn to live with guilt than face the hard work of new life. In other words, we'd, we'd rather sit around feeling bad and depressed that we got caught than actually do the hard work of restoring the relationship, of rebuilding whatever it was that we had broken, of doing something that might actually lead to healing, to wholeness. Too often what we do is we shame and blame. As I said this earlier, too often we get caught up in something and we know we've made a mistake, but in order to kind of cover ourselves and protect ourselves, we point out the, the sins and the weaknesses and the problems of those people and look at the way they've lived and behaved. And, uh, you know, what I did was maybe not such a good thing, but uh, compared to the rest of these folks, my goodness, the real problem. And you see what we're doing? It's just like Adam in the garden. That woman that you gave me, the fingers are pointing everywhere else except for acknowledging what we've done. 
for too long in our culture, we have blamed and shamed the victims rather than owning the mistake itself at face value. When we admit and acknowledge the sin, it becomes a doorway to new beginning. The hard part, the hard part always, is the clarity that we need to be honest about our own participation in it. Now, I, I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to be, I want to be clear about, about something. When we name this, we do not name sin or a failure or mistake as a way to humiliate the other person or to do any harm to them in any way. Absolutely not. For too long in this country, that kind of theology has been at work. It's a kind of a, a spiritual terrorism. I, I, I heard in way too many uh, Sunday school classes and youth groups growing up in the churches that I, that I attended as a child and a, and, a, and a youth being told that you're a, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God and you better watch yourself or you're going to burn forever in hell and you better not do this and I remember one time, I remember one time when I was, I think it was seventh grade, our youth group went to hear this preacher, some famous preacher, don't remember his name now, there were about seven or eight hundred kids in this big church, uh, this preacher got up there and he said to us, if you are doing something wrong that you know is wrong and then you die not long after that, you will suffer in the torments, torments of hell forever. I was 13, I don't remember who I was sitting next to, but I looked at him and I said, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> I think my call to ministry might have begun then. Later, I remember, right after I got out of college, I was planning to be a teacher and a coach, but I took a job at a small church in Northern California as the youth director. They told me I could, I could coach at the high school, which I did, but I really got into leading the youth group and, and began, some of these theological questions began to arise again. I remember one Sunday, I was teaching the high school Sunday school class, and Jean, who was a regular member of the class and attended the church, came and she brought a friend. And a friend walked right across the classroom, came over to me, she was a, a, a high school-aged girl. Her name was Mary. My name's Mary. It's nice to see you. I want you to know I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Am I allowed to attend? I said, uh, sure. <laughs> in fact, we got a lot of great donuts over here, and the cream-filled ones might change your opinion about whether or not God exists. They're really good. And she didn't laugh. But she came back. And she came back. And she came back. And I got to know her pretty well. And then one day after church, we sat down in the courtyard outside, and she told me her story. She said that her parents sent her to Bible camp every year after first grade. First grade, second grade, third grade, a Bible camp up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, a beautiful spot, she said. I loved going. It was so much fun. But then in fourth grade, it shifted, and they started preaching to us about the dangers of hell. And this one preacher said, if the bus crashes on the way down the mountain and you haven't asked God for forgiveness of your sins, you're going to be sent to hell. She said, that happened again in fifth grade and in sixth grade. And she said, every summer that happened, I got baptized. Fifth grade, I got rebaptized. Sixth grade, I got baptized again because I was afraid that if I hadn't done the right things and the bus crashed, she said, Glenn, that's total nonsense, don't you think? And I said, of course it is. Of course it is. I said, did you memorize John 3:16 at that Bible camp? She said, yes, I did. What are the first four words? Four God so loved. I said, we don't have to believe in hell. There's nothing in the Bible that says we have to. By the way, at that point, I was about 23. I hadn't been to seminary. I was hoping that was true. <laughs> Turns out it is. Turns out it is. Four months later, at the end of her senior year of high school, she came down to the front and was baptized in the waters, not of fear and spiritual terror, but in the waters of love and grace 
and forgiveness. See, I've, I've told you that story because I want you to know, first of all, we don't want to at all sound like we're, we're leading ourselves toward that kind of, that kind of uh, a false understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. I also want you to see that the psalmist we read this morning, this is how he understands God. There's a ton of confession in there about his iniquity, his sin, his failure, and all the rest. But he understands that it's his fault and no one else's. He understands, or at least hopes and prays, that the love he's heard of from God will be given to him. Here are a couple of excerpts. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. Pause there for a moment. Have you ever done something that was so painful to another person, especially somebody you loved, that actually caused you to feel sick? It's not that this, the, the, the sickness was given as a punishment, but you just felt, oh, maybe even ached, as he says here, maybe even ached in your bones for the way you treated her or the things you said to him. He, he goes on, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Then the last verse, do not forsake me, O Lord, my salvation. His last word is one that recognizes the simple teaching that Jesus brought in John 3:16. for God so loved. He's relying on the love of God at this point. He's staking his life on the hope of God's salvation and God's grace and forgiveness that they're greater than his sin. They're greater than all the mistakes he's ever made in his entire life combined. You see, this psalm is not in the Bible to make us feel guilty. It's, it's, it's not there to make us feel really bad. Guilt is good only as a bridge. If you're stuck in guilt, it's time to stand up and move across that bridge towards forgiveness and grace. This psalm is in the Bible to help us see that in the naming of our sin, in the recognition of it, we are invited to a new life, to a new hope, and to a new way of being. Jesus knows this. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, you'll find that Jesus oftentimes forgives sin without being asked to forgive it. He just kind of walks up to some people and says, oh, your sins are forgiven. He just throws forgiveness around everywhere he's going all the time. My, my, one of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 2. Jesus has gone back home to his home in Capernaum, where he was living at the time. Uh, those of us who went on the Holy Land trip, we visited uh, Capernaum. It's this beautiful, lovely little spot. Uh, the ruins there, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, a gorgeous place. And you can just kind of, just kind of felt like, wow, I can really hear Jesus teaching here. Well, here's Jesus in his home teaching. There's uh, maybe 100 or 200 people there, according to Mark's gospel. They're crammed around. They're at the door. They're all gathered around the house as Jesus is teaching. And by the meantime, there's outside some friends who are carrying a, a stretcher-like thing where their friend who is paralyzed is lying. They want to bring him to Jesus. They've heard that Jesus is a great healer. So they're trying to get in, but they can't get in because of the crowd. And so they climb up on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof of Jesus' home and they lower their friend down. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, I would be like, um, this is my house. You just tore out my roof. What are you guys doing? I'm going to have to call my insurance company. Jesus says something even more unusual, though. Instead, he says to the man on the mat who's obviously paralyzed, whose great friends have done all this stuff to get him there before Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. What a fascinating moment. If, if I'm the guy on the mat, I'm thinking, Lord, um, 
thank you, uh, but can you heal me? I really like to get up and run again and play with my kids and chase the dog and, and do all of that. But the next thing that happens is they get into an argument, Jesus and the religious leaders, the people like Jim and me, get into an argument about forgiveness and who has the right to forgive and all this stuff, kind of the precursor of what church has been doing for 2,000 years. And then Jesus, at the end of the story, looks at the guy and says, oh, by the way, you're healed. Pick up your mat and walk. I think the point is this. Healing is marvelous. It's wonderful. It's, if you've ever experienced it in any way, whether it's through a doctor or healthcare, whatever it might have been, or even a miracle, it's a marvelous experience. But what Jesus wants us to see is that the forgiveness is the greater miracle. Forgiveness is what every one of us will need at some moment. When was the last time you needed forgiveness? When was the last time you knew and you could feel it in your bones? When was the last time you needed forgiveness? I, I'm, I'm tempted to have you turn to the person you're sitting next to. Chances are pretty good. If it's somebody you care about, they already know. They already remember. Was it a trivial thing? Was it an easy thing? Or did you feel it in your soul? Did your heart race at the thought of actually confessing whatever it was? When was the last time? Fred Craddock, the great old preacher, says, we can't have great friends without forgiveness. We can't have loving families without forgiveness. And the only one who can forgive is the one who's been hurt or harmed. The rest of us are just bystanders. When was the last time you needed forgiveness? Fred also tells this marvelous story. It's about a mother and, and her six-year-old boy who's full of, of, of energy and excitement and enthusiasm. Every day he comes home from school, he comes running down the, the center of, of his house and he, he slides into the kitchen like he's sliding into second base. And his mom finally this time says, look, you can't do that anymore. You come running through the house like this, someday you're gonna stumble and fall and hurt yourself or you're gonna knock something over and break something. You gotta stop that. And the little boy, okay, fine, yes, mommy. Next day comes home from school, he's excited to see his mom. Dad's there too, he comes running in, he slides in, into the, kitchen like he always does, and he bangs the wall this time, and a vase, a beloved vase of his mother's, falls off the mantle, and it shatters into a hundred pieces. Dad walks over and goes, it's just a vase. It's okay. Mom, though, says, no, it's not. It's not okay. It's not just a vase. My mother gave that to me. Her mother gave it to her. I was going to give it to you. And she sits down next to her son and she starts to weep and he starts to weep and then she hugs him and he hugs her back tightly and they sit there together in a pool of tears and arms wrapped around each other and Fred asks, where was the real forgiveness here? From the father or the mother? The promise of the text, the promise since the days of Adam and Eve have been given to us that when we come and acknowledge our, our failure, our weakness, even dare we say the word sin, our tears become a baptismal moment of grace and hope and forgiveness before the, for the promise is this, that the darkness of our sin is nothing compared 
to the light of God's love. Amen.